This is the paradox of following Jesus. That if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. That if you want to live, you have to die before you die. This is true in all places and in all times. But in Jesus, we see the word, the truth, the way of things made flesh and living among us. We see this message to humanity in a person. But a long time ago in the desert, God brought his family, his people, into the wilderness so that they could find out who they were and where they were going. And they find this incredible thing that's going to inform our time in God's word today. They find that a lot of times the very thing that you think is going to destroy you will lead to your resurrection. That the very thing that you're just begging God to get rid of in your life or in your experience or in your relationship, the thing that you're just begging him to just wave the wand and make go away is exactly the thing that is made to get your attention or intended to get your attention. God's people had been in Egypt in slavery and that slavery had all but ruined and extinguished the dreams of God for his people. And their dreams with him. They were miraculously delivered out of Egypt. And you would think that that would get their attention, right? You would think that that would capture their imagination. But it doesn't. We're going to pray and we're going to dive into God's word. But as we do that, I want you to think about what is the thing in your life that you're, just, you're afraid of? You think that that thing is going to destroy you. That thing is going to unmake you. That thing is going to ruin your relationship. That that thing is the very thing that you just, if God was God and he loved me, he would just remove. He would just get rid of. What is that thing? Because that thing might be the key to your own death and resurrection this morning. So why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to think, what is that thing? What is that thing? It may be a series of things for you. If God was a genie in a bottle, and he's not, right? But sometimes we approach him that way. If God was a genie, and you rubbed the lamp, and he came out, and he spoke with Robin Williams' voice, and he said, I'll give you a wish, and you could wish for anything, to go away, anything to change, what would it be? What would it be? God, get rid of this thing. God, change this thing. This, what is it? Just spend some time being honest with yourself and with God. And then if you're bold enough, I want you to pray this in whatever words make sense to you. Just in the quietness of your heart. Would you be bold this morning? Would you ask God, God, show me how that thing could lead to my own death and resurrection. God, show me how that thing might actually draw me closer to you. And closer to your plans and your dreams for my life. You don't have to pray those exact words. But whatever, whatever makes sense to you, pray. May it come from the honesty of your own heart. God, thank you for this time and your word that we're going to spend together. And God, I know that for my life, there have been things in recent memory that I just, I thought they were the problem. You know, if, if that thing is the problem. And if you could just, just, just get rid of that thing. If you could just 
if you were a genie in a bottle, you know, and you're not, but if you were and you would just, just fix that, that I would have life and that I would have that to the full. God, would you obliterate that approach that we make to you in that way? How we approach you, God, and we think that we know better and we know how to fix things. God, let us look at our brothers and sisters who were brought out of Egypt. Later, our our brothers and sisters who were Pharisees, who, who knew your word inside, outside, upside down. God, would we not look at our friends in the text and think, man, those guys just messed up. What dummies, God, I just, would you convict us that we are in the text, that we, you, we, our attention should have been gotten by now. God, would you get our attention? Would you shock us out of complacency? And would you lead us closer to you? It's in your son Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to take a little journey through the text today. We've got three very short passages that we're going to look at today. They're not, none of them are very long. They're just a few verses each. But again, as we go through our time in Lent, what I've done is we've taken some scriptures from typical traditional Lenten scriptures. And so what happens is they'll pick an Old Testament and a New Testament and a letter. They'll put them together, and that'll be your text for the day. And a lot of times when I was growing up, I would go to, my, my grandfather was a Lutheran pastor, so I'd go to Lutheran church every once in a while, and they did the, the, the word is blank, the liturgy. They did the liturgy together. I should know that better than I do. Um, they did the liturgy together, and they would do, you know, an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, and something from the letters. Maybe you all have experience with this in a, in a denominational type setting. So they would go through it, and a lot of times I would sit back, and then I would hear my grandfather or another Lutheran pastor preach. And they would give like a 10-minute sermon about something that I, I had no idea how that came out of that text a lot of times. Like, and maybe I was, just, I was young, so maybe I just didn't understand. And sometimes it was brilliant. I'm not you know, knocking their preaching. I'm just saying that a lot of times I would hear this message and I would look at these texts and I would be like, how did that, how did that work? Or where did that come from? So my hope is, is that as we work through God's word together that you can see a through line with these texts. That they're not just random but that the overall message might be one that gets our attention, okay? So that's what we're going to do together. Let's look at Numbers 21. Maybe that's the last text that you would have thought you would have got into on a Sunday morning. It's not a common text. And this is not a common passage. It's super weird, full disclosure. So Numbers 21, picking up in verse 4, it says this. They, this is God's people, God's family, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They grew impatient on the way. I probably could stop here. We could just do a whole message about how are you growing impatient on the way. What is the thing that you're impatient with in your life? How do we grow weary and impatient on the way? They are impatient on the way. Why? They are impatient on the way because of the past and the future. And they forget the miraculous present that God has brought them to. Did you hear what I said? They're thinking about the past. They're thinking about how good it was to be slaves in Egypt, as if that was a thing. God had intervened miraculously to bring them out of Egypt because their cries of affliction had been going on for centuries. And now they are free, roaming in the desert, looking back, saying, man, slavery was awesome, wasn't it? 
Wasn't slavery so good? This does not mean that their wandering in the desert was so bad. It means that their perspective is so warped and so broken that they cannot see that where they're at is deliverance. Are we so different? Are you so different? Am I so different? Consumed with the past, consumed with the way things were, or the way things were in that moment, in that situation, they were better, or they were different, or they were something, and I wish I could just go back there to that time. Maybe that's you. They are also impatient because of the future. God has promised them a home, and they're not home yet. And if he would just fill in the blank, they would be home. If he would just move, if he would just intervene, if he would just do more faster, they would get to the place where they are going, okay? Are we so different? Why are we impatient on the way because of the past and because of the future, obsessed with how things used to be? Or obsessed with the mistakes that we made. Obsessed with getting somewhere in the future of getting to the end. We forget that there is nothing that exists but now. And this is as true as anything I've ever said up here. That you can remember the past. Yeah, that's fine, but it's just now. The past is a construct in our minds. The future does not exist. And we can be present with God and we can be present with each other. Like we're going to be around the lunch table here in a little bit. And some of us are going to be present. This is not like a challenge or like I'm going to be judging how present you are, right? But some of it, like we're going to be, like even right now, we're thinking about work, you know? What do I got to do tomorrow? What do I got to do next week? What happened this week that messed me up? Like they cannot, they're having trouble living right now. With God and with each other. Look at what they say in verse 5. They spoke, they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up here out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Can you relate to this prayer? Why have you brought me here to die? It's melodramatic. It assumes that you know where this is going. There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. If you're following along in your app or your paper Bible, if you just flip one chapter to the left, God provided water for them miraculously from a rock. Literally, like in the chapter right before this, God has provided bread from heaven, heavenly bread, and they're sick of it. They're tired of it. And they're lying. To themselves and to God. It isn't that they don't have provisions along the way. Do you hear what I'm saying? It isn't that God is not providing for them along the way. It is that they detest the way that he's providing for them along the way. And if that doesn't preach, I don't know what will, right? Because we are on our way. And we are growing impatient with the provision that God has given. We wish he would do more or do different. And they complain. We've changed so much in a couple thousand years, right? And then the, one of the weirdest, actually this is one of the weirdest, and there's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible. You've heard me talk about a lot of it. This is such a weird thing that happens. This is one of those things, by the way, I'm going to tell you, this is like pastoral confessions right now. This is one of those texts that I've only preached like twice and that I hesitate to preach ever because it's so weird and because I think I'm never going to fully understand it. 
Okay? There are pa passages like that for pastors. They won't tell you. I'll tell you. Right? I'll tell you that this passage, I don't even know if I understand it fully. Because it's so strange. Look at what happens. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, like you do. And they bit people, and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. There is no way to polish this to make it not weird, okay? I'm not even going to try. It's very strange. There's this thing of, there's this called thing in, the, in Bible study that's called the principle of first mention. Maybe you've heard it before. But you go and you, when, when, God, when someone mentions something in a text, you go back to the first time that it's mentioned. So when I see venomous snakes, I think about, and snakes are pretty important in the Bible. The serpent, snake, Satan, back in Genesis, temptation, all that stuff. There's, a, there's an imagination around snakes. And so when I'm reading this text and the meaning that I can get from it is that how do you get people's attention? Like when we ask, when, when people, I talk to people all the time that say, I talked to someone this week that said, I wish God would just tell me something. Like, I wish, you would, I wish God would just speak to me, would just say something. That's what they're doing. Like, I wish God would just intervene. He heard their cries. He brought them out of Egypt, miraculously, with plagues and miracles. He provided for them in the desert. They didn't have any food, and he brought bread from heaven. He brought water from rocks over and over and over and over and over again. And we look at these people, and we say, what buffoons? But where are you? And where am I? If you're breathing, if it's your breath in our lungs as we pour out our prayer. Like, we have been loved with a great love. And we've been brought with a steady hand to whatever place you're in in your life right now. Whatever place you're in. But for God in the Old Testament with these folks, like, how do you get there? Apparently, God in his creativity sends snakes in this particular episode. To get their attention. People die. And notice what they do. They came and they grumbled to God and to Moses. And now they ask Moses to pray for them. What does this mean? This means that the responsibility that they put upon God and upon Moses. Like they don't want the response. Like they could have prayed to God. But instead they ask Moses to pray for them. You do it. Like we're, we're not, we're, like, that's how they approach God. Through someone else. So Moses prayed. Look at what God does. It gets, I mean, if you can believe it, it gets weirder. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake. Okay. <laughs> what, what do you mean make a snake? This is a new, we've never done this before. <laughs> what, do, what do you mean make a snake? You mean like the serpent of old, the devil who leads the whole world astray that was in the garden? Like this is a weird, weird this, what, why do you want, what do you mean make a snake? To make a snake and put it on a pole, okay? Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. I, I don't really know how to explain this to you, frankly. Because, I, I mean, I've read commentators and I've heard messages on this and I've heard some pretty fantastical explanations of exactly what this might... None of them really make sense to me. 
just so you know. Like, me personally, if I'm, I'm going to be honest with my friends here, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't heard an explanation that fully grasps and makes sense of why this happens the way it does. But I can only tell you that when I look at this text and I see what God did, they're whining and like grumbling and they are helpless, right? And so God constructs this inside situation where they come to him for help and they, have, they make a snake and they put it on a pole and they say, if you want to live, you need to do a ridiculous thing. If you want to live, you need to do something that's outside of your mind. This is not some ancient form of technology where you looked at a picture of a snake and automatically your snake bite was healed. This is a ridiculous thing that happens. It's nonsensical in a way. That you would put a snake on a pole, you'd look at it, and that was your... That's the point that I can see. The point is that you... You are so broken, and there's nothing that will get your attention. Nothing. The only thing that gets your attention is being bit by snakes and having to look at a snake on a pole. That's the lengths that God has to go to to capture the attention of a hard-hearted people. I think that might be the point, maybe. Maybe. And if you have a better take on it, I'd love to hear it after this. The solution to their suffering, the solution to their pain is a graceful look, a faithful look at what caused them so much pain. Their lives were saved by God, yes, but by looking at the very thing they thought would kill them. Do you hear what I'm saying? That instead of killing the snakes, which he doesn't, God destroys and dismantles their lack of faith and their hard-heartedness. In a stroke of true, incredible irony, later in the book of Kings, they will have to smash the snake to pieces because they kept it, and some of God's people would worship it because it was the thing. The snake on the pole, bronze snake on the pole, was the thing that kept us safe. So let's pray to the snake on the pole. No. Come on, guys. Come on. But you can understand, though, right? Because I do the same thing. And so do my friends, right? We mistake a mark of faith, this leap, for the thing itself. Now, this is a tough dismount here. It's so hard, and I might bottle it. But thousands of years later, Jesus, in the only other mention that we really have that's solid in explaining this text to us, and it doesn't really even explain it, comes thousands of years later. Jesus comes teaching and preaching, and one of the most important, powerful leaders comes to talk to Jesus in the dead of night. Nicodemus is his name, and he's a Pharisee, and he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Those might turn off alarm bells in your, in your mind coming up on Easter because it is the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin that are largely responsible for the death of Jesus later. He is on the council. And he secretly comes to Jesus in the dead of night to talk to him frankly about who he is and about what he's doing. And Jesus says insane things to Nicodemus. Please don't quote me out of context. Jesus says crazy stuff to Nick. He says, and we take all this out of, like, we take all this and put it on bumper stickers and stuff, which, I mean, do whatever you need to do. But, like, 
we, we do this, but he says, like, you have to be born again. Like, if you want to be a part of God's family, if you want it, you need to be born again. Well, and Nicodemus, he's like, what do you mean? So I got to go back in there and come out again? Is that, what, is that what you mean? That's what he asks him. I'm not making this up. How can a man be born again? What would it, like, how would that work? And Jesus is, he just, Jesus is like, okay, that doesn't work. So what, what, what kind of metaphor, what kind of, what kind of words could he use to get the attention of the most religious guy that could have ever come to him in the middle of the night? What do you think? I wouldn't think this, but this is what happens. Look at John chapter 3, verse 14. And don't worry, we're going to go through John 3.16 today. Are you excited? It's the, it's, it's the time, yeah. So like the verse that everyone knows, this is the two verses before the verse everyone knows, okay? I mean, this is incredible. When he's trying to explain something to Nicodemus about who he is, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, huh? What do you mean, just as Moses lifted... Okay, just as the, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Are you, what, what do you, if I'm Nicodemus, you know, he just told me I needed to be born again, and that was weird. And then he tells me about this snake in the wilderness, and I'm, I'm picturing Nicodemus like I would be doing, because I've been with the scriptures my whole life. I would, I would actually, it would take me a beat to remember what he was talking about. Because it's such an obscure story that very few people would ever reference or even talk about. But if Jesus is coming up with a metaphor to talk about how, the amazingness of Jesus, now he's talking about the snake that Moses lifted up. What do you mean? What do you mean, Jesus? How did he lift up the snake? And who did he lift up the snake for? I want to tell you something. Moses lifts the snake for a group of weary bitten, despairing, ungrateful insiders. That is who the snake is raised up for. The snake is raised up for the people of God who should have known better. That's who the snake is raised up for. People that getting out of captivity in Egypt wasn't enough. And bread from heaven wasn't enough. And water from the rock was not enough. People that their attention had to literally be gotten by being bit by a snake and face death. For a people who were totally unaware of the grace that they had been given, totally resentful of what God had given people on the inside. We want to save people on the outside. But the snake was lifted up for God's people that everyone could believe, even the ungrateful, blind insiders. Jesus represents everything that religion thinks will destroy it. Grace given freely? Are you kidding me? No more hoops to jump through? Come on, Jesus, we need at least a couple hoops to jump through. How will we control people if we believe in God's grace and His love and His peace? Like, how will we, how will we punish people if all they had to do was look at a snake to be healed? If that's the kind of wanton, free grace just given to people, how are we going to control it? 
Now then, okay, so, he, so Jesus does this Numbers 21 reference, which, how in the world? But then comes a verse that is typically direct, like this is the verse that you print up on a bulletin on a card and you show it at ball game. Like this is what you, this is the one that everyone knows. Or a lot of people know, not everyone. I want to say something about this inside-outside business. You may wonder if I'm overplaying this. But in this passage, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Jesus is evangelizing one of God's people. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like if there was a people who would understand all the stuff that Jesus is saying, it would be Nicodemus. He's on the Sanhedrin. He's a Pharisee. He's at the top of the religious structure of his day, and now he's on the outside. You know, a lot of folks throughout history have said, well, I'm a Christian, or I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm a fill-in-the-blank with anything you could possibly be or want to be. Jesus cannot possibly be talking about me. He's talking about them. Nicodemus was Jewish, right? Those are the Jewish people. We aren't Jewish. We follow Jesus. We are the ones who figured it out. Except the Hebrews wandering in the desert thought the exact same thing. Nicodemus, sitting, talking to Jesus, thought the exact same thing. I don't need the gospel. I figured it out, or I have it already. What about us? What about you? What about me? It says in verse 16, John 3, 16, one of the most important verses in the whole Bible, and just hands down. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world, the whole thing, all of it. Anyone who's ever lived, anyone who's living, anyone who will live, he was willing to give all of himself to be raised up so that believing in believing God is a God who saves and rescues, that he sent his son. We could see the darkness beaten back. We could see death not have the last word. And we think this verse is for them, but this verse is for us and for everyone, always, everywhere. And then after this verse that we think is for them, after we read a verse that, you know, we learned that anyone who didn't jive with this was in trouble, and that was always someone else. This is in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He came to rescue. He came to be a mark of grace, to be like a, like, yes, like a snake raised up, that people just in faith had to do something that didn't make any sense, that they couldn't prove, that they couldn't analyze, that they couldn't, there was no medicine, there was no science that suggested that this would work. But this was an act of faith to believe. This was an act of faith to trust. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip ahead a little bit and we're going to skip a few verses to Ephesians 2 picking up in verses 1 and 2. Um, and I, I just want to share this last little bit with you. 
And this is where the dismount gets even harder because we just talked about grace and about God loving us and giving us his son and giving us everything for nothing. And I want to talk to you a little bit about just how, what what does that look like? What does it look like for us? And that's why I think this reading is included for today. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, and this is actually verse 1, but check it out. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like God's people in the desert, like Nicodemus and his religious friends, the writers of the scriptures in the, in the letters specifically want to communicate to us the deadness of this life lived without faith and trust and hope. Confess to us that we were asleep. And maybe you feel asleep now. Unthinking, unfeeling, not knowing or caring or seeing dead in our mistakes. Not because they're just mistakes, but because they are broken ways of living. So much so that they're not even a living at all, but they're actually a walking death. If you are living, you're part of a kingdom, an order, a way things are. Paul throws the truth at us here in Ephesians that if we aren't a part of the kingdom of life, we're part of the kingdom of death. That all of us, not some of us, all of us have been led around by our brains and our hearts, our fleshly understanding of who we are, which is broken, shattered. Notice that in verse 3, he says that we are following its desires and thoughts. I want you to think about, because the people in the desert give us a tangible view of that. They were led around by their desires and their thoughts. Also the desire for things to go back to the way they were. The thoughts, the rational thoughts of, hey, where is this going, God? Can we wander around the desert forever? The desires and the thoughts just corrupted their imagination. Like the rest, he says, we're deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. I want to end there today because I want to ask you, you know, do you think, how do you approach God? How do you approach him? How do we approach him as we approach Easter? As we get ready to celebrate the resurrection and what it could mean for all of my words and all my actions and all my relationships and all my attitudes and my thoughts. How do we approach God? Do we approach God thinking that we can figure it out? Thinking that we can analyze and process and get to the place where we just understand how it all works instead of looking up at a weird snake on a pole because I don't, because I don't know, because God said so. And I need to tr- take a mark of faith and a mark of trust to step out of my reason and my, all my religious trappings and underpinnings. It is by grace, he says, that you've been saved. Even when you were dead, you were saved by grace.
So I want to end with that. I want to, I want to have you pray and have you take some real good time to process and to really try to weld this to your life. I know this is kind of a weird message and there's a lot going on, but why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes? Why don't you do that? I want to ask you, as I asked you at the beginning, ask you about this question. Is there something in your life you want to go away that you could just, just poof away? What is that thing? What is that very thing that God is using to get your attention? If you want to make the parallel to your life, what's the, what's the act of obedient trust? And those words are hard for me to even say out loud. But what is the act of obedient trust that you could make this week, today, right now. To instead of running away from that thing, instead of explaining it away, instead of asking God to just magically fix it, to be trusting with it. To look to Him for grace.